Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts share valuable insights, answer questions, and tell some real-world stories that'll get you thinking about how you can tweak your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Did I just say retain more profit when you sell? Yes, I did. Ever hear of capital gains? Actually, a capital gain is good. It's the tax on it that hurts. So today, Realty Speak fans, we will be doing a deep dive into what happens when you sell investment real estate and have a capital gain and what to do about it. Without further ado, I'm your Realty Speak host, Bill Widener, and what a treat I have in store for you today. Welcome Bob Russo, a CPA and the Principal Accountant at Robert P. Russo Certified Public Accountants, along with Rob Pesha, aka 1031Rob, your 1031 Exchange Quarterback, a registered rep with Great Point Capital, and an expert on Delaware Statutory Trusts. Bob, Rob, thanks for joining us today on Realty Speak to chat about the strategies a seller of real estate may use to defer the tax on capital gains. Great to be here, Bill. Bill, it's great to be here. Bob, I heard that your expertise on tax code is that you bring to the beach tax code as reading material. Really? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, I have a love of tax law. I, I know my wife thinks it's bizarre too, but you know what it is? I love helping my clients, and so I enjoy reading the tax law like a detective novel, and then I actually look at how I can use it to help my clients. So for me, it's a passion. And Rob, with a Series 7 securities license and a Series 66 investment advisory license, there are many financial products you could represent, yet you choose to be 1031 Rob. What's that all about? Yeah, it's funny. People ask me that all the time. I have the ability to sell so many things, but at the end of the day, the guy with a menu of pre-approved 1031 products that come in all shapes and sizes. They're highly modular. And that's why I like to say, if you're tired, stuck, or out of luck, call 1031 Rob. Chances are I can bring a new option to the table that's not being discussed. It's very underserved. There aren't many of us doing it. It's a fun space. Have you been doing this since the beginning, or is this something that you kind of transitioned into from other profession? So the answer would be transition. I started in financial services in 2008. Uh, great year to start financial services, though I had a good run out of the box. And I started in different disciplines, as many financial advisors do, doing the life insurance, disability, long-term care, annuities. I tried a lot of different Baskin-Robbins 31 flavors, and I didn't love any of them. In 2012, I came across this discipline, and I realized how niche it was. I could literally boil it down into four categories of people that I help using these products, and again, very underserved. So I decided to plant roots in it. I created a brand, 1031 Rob. People sometimes know what it is, sometimes they don't. But it doesn't matter. It has a stickiness and it frees me up to meet with good people and empower and, like Bob said, help clients. And Bob, before you were reading Tax Code on the Beach, what were you doing? Just laying on the beach. Oh, without the tax code. Okay. Without the tax code. Yeah, actually so traveling a lot, eating, cooking, yeah, and just hanging on the beach. Yeah, I understand that you're quite the chef and quite the world traveler. Well, I love to travel and I love to cook. Yeah. So it's a so, great combination. So did you go to college for accounting and then you just got into accounting? Yeah. Uh, actually, I went to college for accounting. Interestingly enough, I dropped out of accounting and became a political science major and a literature minor. Then I so sojourned for a while, traveled, did a lot of different things, and then went back for accounting. And then have you always had your own firm or did you work for some other financial services firm? Well, when I first started, I worked for one of the, at the time was the big eight firms, but it was clear that was not my forte. And I ended up working at the 20th largest tax firm 
And that's where I sort of got my experience. In fact, interestingly enough, in 1986, there was a major tax law change that had a huge impact on real estate. My passion for law, tax law became so evident then that even though I was one of the newest members of the staff, I had read the law about six times. They put me in charge of lecturing it to their partners and to their, to their clients. So that's why you're here today, Bob, because <laughs> it's, it's not just being an accountant. It's being an accountant that loves real estate tax law. And I'm really, really excited about what the three of us are going to talk about today. So for our listeners, uh, you know, this is really all about what are some of the options? And we're also going to talk about the Biden tax plan, because obviously that could have an impact on some of this. But what, what are the options when you want to sell investment real estate, right? There's the typical 1031 exchange where you come out of one property and go into another. You can do something called a deferred sales trust, which I talked about in a previous episode. There are also other options. You can buy a triple net property that's managed by a manager, right? You just get a check every month. But maybe you still want to be in an asset that you believe is going to increase in value and that there'll be opportunity to exit out of that one and go into other ones. And you don't want to pay capital gains tax by not somehow exchanging some of the proceeds into another asset where you can defer the payment of capital gains tax. Bob, let's say someone sells a piece of New York City real estate between the state, federal, and city capital gains rates. How much of their capital gain would they be giving up today? Approximately 35% between the federal rate of 20% if it's above 450000 or 480000 plus 3.8% net investment income tax plus state and city. So when we do a calculation for clients on the gain, we normally project about a 35% tax. That means that if someone had a million dollar gain, they could get $350,000 to the government. That is right. Yeah, that's Absolutely. a lot of money. It's it is of, a lot of money. Yeah. Absolutely. So there got to be ways to not necessarily avoid that, but at least put it off for a while. Now, Rob, tell us a little bit about what's different between a 1031 exchange, a typical 1031 exchange where someone, they sell a building. Uh, let's say it's a multifamily mixed-use building. They've got you know 100 units. They have... Uh, six or seven units on the first floor that they're renting out to retail. They sell that, and now they're thinking to themselves, and they have a big gain. They could have a $5 million gain. They could have a $10 million gain. They could have a $15 million gain. Now they have this gain, and they don't want to pay 35% of it to the government. And maybe they've owned this real estate for a long time. So correct me if I'm wrong, Bob, but they could have depreciated it down to the point where they really have no basis, that's a good point before Rob takes over here. If you have a property, let's just keep it simple, a million dollars, and you depreciate it over 27 and a half years, which is the, the real estate r residential depreciation law. So your basis is zero, and the value of when you sell it is now $2 million. On that first million dollars, you're going to pay 25%, not 20. Why? Because it's called depreciation recapture. So you're going to pay 25% plus the 3.8% net investment tax plus the state and city taxes. And then on the second million, then you'll pay the 20% plus 3.8 plus the state and city. Wait, so what you just told me is that depreciation recapture is a higher rate than uh, the right. regular capital gains. That's right. 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 Absolutely. So Rob, 
someone comes to you with a scenario like Bob just talked about, and sorry, everybody, but these guys are the best, even though they have the same name that starts with a different letter. Bob is CPA Bob, and Rob is 1031 Rob, okay? So just try and get that straight. And I think CPA Bob's voice is just a little deeper. He's talking tax code, and Rob is talking Delaware Statutory Trust. So Rob, go ahead, take it over. Just a backpedal here. Everybody on the planet, when they go to sell an investment property, know that they have two options available today. They can pay the tax to Uncle Sam. He loves that one. Or they can do this thing called a 1031 exchange. And by doing so, you have to hire a QI, qualified intermediary, follow the rules, follow the timelines. What's a qualified intermediary? Sure. Qualified intermediary is the third party representative that holds the funds in escrow for the exchange. One of the 1031 rules is you cannot take constructive receipt of the funds. It disallows the exchange. So if you let the funds, the proceeds go into your bank account, you're done. The exchange is over. A qualified intermediary, which is basically the, the third party entity that holds the funds in escrow, has to be hired before you close. Super important. Uh, Rob, just one point on that too. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that includes your attorney cannot take the cash either. It has to be the qualified intermediary. Correct. There's a conflict of interest there. So it should not be the attorney. It should be an unrepresented third party that holds the funds. How many times do you have people come to you and say, uh, hey, I just closed on my uh, on my investment property and I want to do a 1031 exchange. And you have to give them that bad news. It actually happens a lot, Bill. More than I'd like to admit. People call me, they say, hey, I just sold my investment property. Uh, I want to do a 1031. The funds are sitting in my TD bank. Let's go. And there's no way to do a rewind on that, Bob? Nope. The law is pretty clear. Right. So it is what it is. It's actually a felony if you try. You touch the cash, it's boot, you're taxed. End the conversation. Wow. Okay. All right. So Rob, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. Sure. Anyway, going back to what I said, everybody on the planet knows if they sell an investment property, they have two options. Pay the tax to Uncle Sam, which he loves, or do this thing called a 1031 like-kind exchange. And as I started saying, you need to follow the rules. You have to hire a QI. You have to identify these replacement properties in 45 days. You have to close on those properties, uh, or could be one property, in 180 days. And these rules are hard and fast. I'm like a third option people don't know that they have. I'm basically a guy with a menu, a pre-approved basket of 1031 products that have no closing risk. They're pre-packaged, ready to go with a big green check mark. They come in all shapes and sizes. And again, I aim them at very specific investors, but the bulk of those investors are exactly what you gentlemen just described. People that are a little older, they've owned the property forever, bought it for next to nothing. Now they're looking to sell. They're looking at a big capital gains tax and also that one that everybody misses, depreciation recapture. So chances are the CPA or the real estate attorney are saying, yeah, do the 1031. Keep more of the money in your pocket working for you instead of losing a large chunk to, uh, to Uncle Sam in taxes. But a lot of these people don't want to be landlords anymore. They're tired of the tenants, the toilets, and the trash. Maybe they want to trade that for the tennis, the tea time, and the travel. That's where I step in. Yeah, and if they're in New York City, they're tired of that too because uh, between the city council and the state, they're not making it easy for landlords, especially small landlords that have owned property for decades and decades are now experiencing a completely different uh, environment than they did even you know two, two three years ago. So Rob, talk a little bit about that menu of prepackaged Delaware statutory trusts, and we're going to call those uh, DSTs, right? DSTs. Tell us a little bit about that basket of products. What are some examples of what would be in there? Happy to talk about DSTs. And to be clear, I'm talking Delaware Statutory Trust, not Deferred Sales Trust. I'm not that DSD guy. That's the other DST. We're not talking about that today, folks. If you want to hear about that, it's episode five. <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes, but go ahead. So DSD stands for Delaware Statutory Trust. It came about in 2004 with a revenue ruling. That revenue ruling was 2004-86, uh, where the IRS said that 
if you package up real estate as a DST, it qualifies for the like-kind exchange. So it's actually one of two ways that you can fractionally own real estate uh, in the context of a 1031. The former structure was something called TIC or tenant in common that came about in 2002. So two years prior. This structure happens to be a little better for the investor. It allows a lot more investors. Any loan to value or debt that's baked into a deal is non-recourse to the investors, contrary to the other structure. So there are restrictions, but they're all good for the investors. It protects the investors. Things like they, the sponsor can't renegotiate the terms of the loan. They have to distribute all cash dividends to the investors. It's just a better mechanism, in my opinion. Again, it's this third option that many people don't know that they have. And when I say they come in all shapes and sizes, what I mean by that is different asset classes in different parts of the country. So we have self-storage, we have industrial, we have retail, multifamily, student housing, assisted living, you name it. You can pick your class asset class-wise, but you can also diversify by geography. Some people that don't like Texas, we won't show them anything in Texas. Some people don't like the East Coast, fine, we won't touch that. You can literally drill down based on geography and also asset class. We'll get into 1031s in general, but specifically about DSTs, you use that a lot where you want to diversify your portfolio because let's say you have a 10-unit apartment building you're trying to sell um, and you want to get into different kinds of asset classes, number one, and two, you don't want the bother of managing the properties because with DSTs, it generally is a fixed rate of return. There's a professional management company that takes care of it. And there's different classes of property. And the good thing about a, a, a like-kind exchange is there's a very, very liberal definition of real estate. Um, as long, There's only two things you can't do in real estate in a like-kind exchange. One is for your principal residence, and two is foreign property versus U.S. property. Otherwise, the field is wide open, and a DST offers you an opportunity to change asset classes, but it does something else, too. Um, sometimes... And I've seen this with clients we've had. I'll give you an example. I had a client who was selling a $24 million building. He had nine units that were business, one he lived in. And he had to, uh, I'll get into identification of the properties, but he didn't have enough. He couldn't identify a building quick enough with the time frame he had. So what did he do? After he bought the other buildings, he also included a DST, and that helped him cover the full amount of the gain so he was able to defer it. He bifurcated the proceeds into multiple different investments, including some real estate that he would manage, a traditional 1031, and then also uh, a DST, which he didn't have to deal with managing. And that was enough to then cover the large amount of proceeds, $24 million. I mean, at this point, if you want, I think it's appropriate to sort of define what you can and can't do with it. 1031. Yeah. And, and I, one of the questions I wanted to ask you when you said there were only two things you can't do in a 1031, which is farm property or a primary residence, what about second home? It's a non-business property. However, however, I just had a case, for instance, of a client who owned a house in the Hamptons. He lived in it, but he rented it out for four months, made a nice killing, and he used it for business. So what we did is we helped him do a 1031 exchange when he just sold it for the business portion of the house, both the rental and the primary business. And then he ended up buying property in Florida to cover that business portion. So he's able to defer the gain. In his case, he wasn't able to defer all of it. And I can talk about other techniques you can defer, but uh, I'm just giving you an example where you can do something like that. 
And certainly there is a strong argument for diversifications inside of DSTs. Bill had mentioned a triple net opportunity before. And of course, the definition of like-kind exchange, it's evolved pretty dramatically since the like-kind exchange came out 100 years ago, right? In 1921, when this started with farmers, uh, with horses and land as a means for them to swap it. Now there's a whole host of things. In addition to that, my menu of DSTs. So Bill mentioned a triple net. You know, a triple net opportunity can easily cost you three, four, five million at a clip, uh, quite possibly even more. From a diversification standpoint, DSTs, the minimum is typically 100,000. So you can arguably get access to different asset classes in different parts of the country for lower amounts, hedge your risk, uh, instead of betting the farm all in one asset class. So if someone had, say, a million dollar gain, and they could diversify it over uh, five or 10 different DSTs. Correct. I wouldn't encourage overdoing it because then it gets messy from an accounting standpoint down the line. You have different liquidity events coming up and it limits your back end options, even with the back end appreciation potential. Uh, but certainly access to multiple DSTs in different parts of the country and different asset classes, there is a benefit to that. Uh, and just to kind of piggyback on what was the benefit of a DST above and beyond the diversification, think of it as a three prong benefit. DSTs all qualify for 1031 like-kind exchanges. So they're 100% ready to go. No closing risk. We close very quickly and effectively. Two, you collect your mailbox money. Bob alluded to that. You ditch the responsibilities of being a landlord again. These are professionally managed institutional grade properties. So for the most part, investors are just setting it and forgetting it. They're collecting their mailbox money, enjoying the ride. They're going to tennis. They're doing the travel. Uh, And then on the back end, these are approximately a five and a half year hold. Could be longer, could be shorter. Depends on what kind of offers are on the table. But on the back end, they're they're sharing in the back end depreciation as well. Then it brings them back to square one. They have the same options that I discussed in the beginning. Pay the tax to Uncle Sam, do a traditional 1031, find your own stuff in the allotted time, or go into another DST or combination of DSTs. You have options. Let's talk about the law as it relates to 1031s, just so we're all on the same page. Yeah. And then I don't know if this is a good time to interject some of what might happen with the Biden tax plan. I'll get into that, but I first want to discuss 1031 and some other options. First of all, uh, like-kind exchange since 2018, just so everybody knows, only real estate. You used to be able to do equipment, art, collectibles, planes, no longer. The Trump Tax and Jobs Act of 2017 right. Right, made it effective late 2017 so that you could no longer do a 1031 exchange for anything but real estate. Now, there's two rules that you have to follow. One- You have to identify the properties, and we'll talk about what that means in a minute, um, within 45 days of closing and the selling of the property, the property you're relinquishing. And two, the whole transaction has to be closed within 180 days. And that's from the date that you close the, the relinquished property, not the 45 days after. Let me make sure I have that straight so the listeners understand. So I sell a property and I close on it June 1st. First of all, 45 days starts June 2nd. Okay. And you got 45 days after June 1st to identify properties. By a certain date, I have to identify a property. Basically by July 16th. Right. And then I have until the end of uh, December. Six months later to close the whole thing. Right. Six months from June 1st. Right. Right. Okay. Remember, they run concurrently from the closing, but the more problematic one is that 45 day because people either procrastinate, they think it's a lot of time, or they put all their eggs in one basket. And then going back to what Bob said, we'll get into it later with the the naming uh, of the properties. uh, You have different rules you can use to your advantage to make sure you put safety belts on it. And that's what I was going to talk about now. The, The most common use rule is you have to identify three properties. Now, when I say identify, you have to be very specific. 
you have to have the address of the property. If it's in a building, you should put the unit number of the property because otherwise it could appear that you're looking at the whole building versus a single unit. So the most common is you have to identify three properties. You don't have to close on all three, but the maximum you can identify is three properties. And then you could close on one of them. That's fine. The second option you have is that you can identify as many properties as you want as long as the market value of all of the properties does not exceed 200% of the, of the selling, the relinquished value of the property. So for instance, if you sell a property for a million, the property that you're going to purchase, cannot, all the properties cannot exceed 2 million. That's the maximum. And the third option you have, and this is riskier, is you have to identify 95% of the properties. But here's, and, and again, there's no number limit. However, you have to close on all 95%. If you don't close on all 95%, the whole deal is done. Shot. So I don't, I don't understand that last part. Explain. Okay. Yeah. So, so let's say you, you identify 100 properties. 95% of them you have to close on. Well, I thought you only could identify three. No, that's, that's what I'm telling you. There's three different rules. Uh, okay. The first rule is to identify three. And, and if, if I could just jump in here just for our, for our listeners, these rules are something that your qualified intermediary or QI will be very familiar with, hopefully. And that's why as a 1031 exchange quarterback, as I label myself, I always equate the 1031 exchange to a symphony. You have different players here trying to get this thing done for you. You have your CPA, you have your real estate attorney, you have your QI, you have your broker. We all work to get this thing done. Articulate what you're trying to do, and your QI's job will be to point you in the right direction with that naming rule. So 45 days to identify, and I can identify a max of three properties. I got to close within six months, and I still don't get this 95% of the properties thing. It's not used that often. It's rare because it's, it's risky. But basically what it's saying is, okay, you, no, no matter how many properties you identify, you have to close a minimum. If, if you're going into it and when you write it up, you're going under that rule, you have to close 95% of the properties that you identify, period. That's it. End of conversation. Let's say I identify 10 properties. If you identify 10 properties- You got to close on all 10. Yeah, basically. That's right. it. If you don't right. close on all 10, the whole deal is done. There's no like-kind exchange. You pay tax on it all. So you can choose to not use that rule. Then. Correct. Right. Yeah. And so as I would- said, the most common rule that 95% of the people use is the three three property rule. Oh, okay. All right. That's so, right. Yeah. And, and is there some kind of benefit to the 95% of the properties rule? Does it, does it give you something that you don't get with the three property rule? Well, yeah. You could identify more properties. That's all. Oh, I see That's what you're saying. The, you know, okay. Yeah. So in other words, the only reason you would do that- Is if there's a chance to identify- Now I get it. It took a yeah. minute. Okay. But I got okay. it. Okay. Yeah. So the only, reason, the only reason you would do that is if you wanted to identify more than three properties. Right. And that would have a lot to do with the size of your sale. Correct. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. does. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now, I do want to talk about the Tax Act of 17 created one other opportunity to defer tax and possibly eliminate tax. And that's, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but called qualified opportunity zones. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because that was in the back of my mind. And I didn't know if we were going to talk about that today, but go ahead. Under the law, there's 8,700 neighborhoods in the U.S. that have identified as qualified opportunity zones. And what that means is this, you can take any capital gain, not just real estate, any capital gain, and as long as you invest it 
in a qualified opportunity fund within six months, here's what happens. If you hold it in the fund for seven years, which would end at the end of 2026, at the end of 2026, number one, you would only pay tax on 85% of the gain that you deferred. But more importantly, from the date you made that investment, if you then hold it for a total of 10 years, any additional gain that accrues from 10 years would be totally tax-free. So give me give you a simple example. You have a $100,000 gain. Let's put a real estate aside for the moment. And it could be a, a stock gain or you sell any some gain. bonds. Any gain, even your principal you residence. Art. Oh, your personal any, residence. Anything. Any capital gain. Bitcoin, cryptocurrency. You sell it long-term gain, short Any gain. You hold it for seven years. At the end of seven years of $100,000. And it doesn't matter whether it's a short-term capital gain no, or a long-term. gain. But, but the character of the gain stays the same at the end of the period in seven years. At the end of 2026. Oh, so you're subject, you're subject to the tax rate of that type absolutely. of gain. Absolutely. Right. And, That's and, number one. Right. And short-term yeah, capital so, gain rate right. is higher. Right. So number one, let's say you have invest $100,000. At the end of seven years, you've been holding it 2026. You're going to pay tax on $85,000. But let's say from the day you invested it, after 10 years, that the value of your investment has grown from 100000 to 200000 Well, what happened? You pay tax on 85000 Your basis is now 100000 It's grown to 200000 That extra $100,000 gain, no tax at all. That's one of the major advantages of doing it. And what's happened is that a lot of people have been primarily investing in real estate because it's become a good vehicle for deferring, let's say on a 1031 exchange, you just don't have enough. You put some in the DST, you buy a local property, but let's say you have three, $400,000 left at the end of it and you don't know what to do. You can invest into a qualified opportunity zone, into real estate or a startup business or any business, and you can still do now. The seven-year period's expired. You only have five years. At the, end of Ju- at the end of December, the five years will have expired. So what would happen is you'd still be able to defer the gain until the end of 2026, but then you pay tax on 100% of the gain, although the 10-year period still exists, that if you hold it for 10 years, you would still not pay any tax on that. And what I want to clarify is that this is not just real estate, it's also opportunity zone businesses. It has to be in the opportunity zone. It can be a startup business. There's certain rules about businesses. There's certain income requirements, wage requirements that are met, which I won't get into, but you can invest in any opportunity zone, business or real estate. Up until today, it's been primarily real estate. But the point of raising all this is that that is another option that you have in addition to the 1031 exchange to be able to defer taxes. However, with the opportunity zone, I believe you give up the opportunity to have the stepped-up basis. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's true. Right. Talk a little bit about stepped-up basis, because I don't think a lot of people even realize that that exists. You know, I teach a class, you know this, at the Real Estate Institute, and when I talk about 1031 exchanges, under the current law, somebody had a property they paid a million dollars for, forget land for the moment, and they fully depreciate it. They've owned the property for 30 years, and the property sells for $10 million. They get a qualified intermediary to handle the deal, and they identify a property that is going to buy, they're going to buy for $20 million. Now, their basis in the property they're selling is zero. Remember that. Why? 
because in, in when you depreciate a property, you're getting a, a current benefit for the cost of the property. And one of the great things about real estate is, is that the smartest users end up usually using debt. So they don't have a lot of their own cash invested, they're be, but they're still able to deduct the cost of the property, even though they didn't pay a whole amount. That's one of the great things about real estate that in, in other areas you don't have. So now, anyway, you got a basis of zero. You got a $9 million gain over and above the, the million dollars in depreciation recapture, which means you'd be paying over $2 million in taxes. The guy's 90 years old, doesn't want to do that. So what does he do? Gets a qualified intermediary, finds a property for $20 million. The QI closes the transaction. It's identified within 45 days, transfers the $10 million to the new property, and then the client borrows another $10 million. Now he's bought a property for $20 million, but what's his basis? His basis on the property he transferred is zero, but he put an extra $10 million in of debt. It's not even his own money. So what happens? His basis goes up to $10 million. After he closes, he walks out of the, the, the uh, QI's office. And he's so happy, makes, does a trip, hop and a jump on the top of the stairs, and he's 90 years old, he trips, falls down, and dies. What happens? Well, guess what? His daughter inherits the property. You know what her basis is? $20 million. Why? Because at the date of death, or six months thereafter, under current law, your beneficiary inherits the property at fair market value. So his daughter could turn around and sell it the day after, and her gain would be zero. However, here's another benefit on the current law. The current estate tax exemption is $11.2 million per person for a married couple. He happens to be married, and his wife is 82. So their estate tax exemption is $22.4 million. That means that his wife doesn't pay any tax either on that. So they've gotten away completely free on any taxes. That is the only scenario in which you can do that under the current law, which is potentially up for grabs with the new Biden plan because he would do away with that except for one to two or two million dollars depending on if if you're married or not. I want to jump in and mention something about what Bob brought up and he brought up a great point about leverage and that people use it wisely in the context of 1031s. One of the benefits of DSTs, the world that I operate in, is that most of them come with leverage. Most of them have between 40 and 55% LTV or loan to value baked in at the sponsor level. So it's not underwritten at the investor level. They don't even have to qualify credit wise. It doesn't even show up on their report, but it's a tremendously powerful tool. Why? because that added depreciation schedule can be used to offset that monthly income. Somebody like Bob can take a look at that new depreciation schedule and say, hey, we can actually make that tax equivalent yield a little higher based on that new depreciation schedule. And sometimes I'll see clients come out of all cash deals. They don't need the leverage. They don't need 55, 60% leverage, but they'll take it on because of that benefit. Interesting point. Going back to the stepped up basis and the Biden plan. Current law that Biden has proposed, the American plan, a job plan, it would, first of all, the ordinary income tax rate would go from 37 to 39%, 39.6%. And that's the highest. That's the highest rate for anybody over 480,000 for a single and about 509 for a married couple. So I want to ask a question about that 400,000, yes. right? So that's adjusted gross income, right? Taxable income. What's included in taxable income? Everything after your deductions. 
itemized deductions or so anything from a Schedule C. Everything, capital gains, Schedule C, wages, uh, income from pass-through entities. If you own your own business and you have an S-corp or a partnership, or you have income from an estate or a trust, dividends, interest, all of that. So correct me if I'm wrong, people at that level of taxable income probably have uh, lots of uh, investments and businesses and uh, they they have huge incomes and huge opportunities for using the tax code to you know whittle that taxable income down. I mean, what percentage of people are in the United States are actually at a four hundred thousand dollar level of taxable income? I mean, the percentage is very low, probably less than one or two percent. But but I do want to make this point though. There is a difference. Like a lot of the clients I deal with, for instance, have their own businesses or on real estate. And in that scenario, if they have a successful business, most of their earnings are coming from their business, not from capital gains or dividends or interest where you're looking at, frankly, a lot of those people are making hundreds of millions. You know, whether it's hedge fund guys or CEOs of big corporations, or um, they're making hundreds of millions and they're living primarily on whether it's carried interest or other pass through income like that, that that's in the millions and millions of dollars. Right. But they're part of that, you know, 2%. They're part of the absolute, they're part of the, they're part of the less than 1%. <laughs> right, right. The upper layer <laughs> is part of less than 1%, right. truthfully. Yeah. If, if so, the- so if I, so let's say, let's say I'm an ordinary guy and, you know, I work for uh, a municipality or a city or a state and I'm making a salary and, you know, 40 years ago, I bought a building, and now I'm going to sell it. Uh, so that capital gain is going to be part of my taxable income. And if uh, it's unfo- over- unfortunately, here here's what happens. Yeah, uh, and I mean, and and I and if it's yeah. over four hundred thousand, then yeah. I'm going to be impacted by you're the changes be in, in this law. That's right. And and if it's over a million, what's going to happen is you're basically going to pay forty three point eight percent on that, because what happens is once it's over a million. The capital gain is taxed at ordinary income rates plus the net investment income, which is still 3.8%. So you combine tax just at the federal level. Just at the federal level. So before you were talking 35% federal, state, and and city, and now just at the federal level, it's going to be 8% more than that. And that's ordinary income rates. That's it. So um, you're looking at probably close to 50% or more. Here's the thing that sometimes happens. People forget prior to the 80s and prior to the Reagan administration, the tax rate in the U.S. at one point in the 50s, 60s was 70%. Then it went down to 50%. So since then, it's gone down consistently and it has gone down for the upper layer of the population. Right now, though, the new law will not affect somebody who just works and makes even a couple of hundred thousand dollars. The good news is that the capital gains tax proposal from Biden does not affect the exclusion for the home. So you still get a $250,000 exclusion when you sell your home, principal residence, if you're single and you get a half million dollar exclusion for a married couple. The proposal is there. There's no step up in basis anymore. Unlike I, the example I just gave you. Step up basis goes away. Step up basis goes away. So that example you just gave me, now the daughter has this $20 million asset and her basis is? Her basis is what her father's basis was. Which was $10 million. $10 million, that's correct. Now, it's not cash. 
she probably would have based at least this is what they proposed 15 years to pay the tax but that's still very onerous if you're dealing with real estate which you know the cash flow meaning all the cash flow may end up going to taxes having said that like any tax law you just don't know where it's going to end up the proposal is there the republicans are certainly not going to go along with it they democrats may be able to do it via reconciliation which means they can pass it themselves. But even within the Democrats, there's differences. The one thing that's going to affect a lot of small businesses, though, and is not talked about as much, and this is businesses no matter how much they earn. Under current law, if you have a, an S corporation and you earn a profit, you take a reasonable salary, it's called, and you earn a profit, you're not paying Social Security or Medicare taxes on the S-Corporation's profits. That's one of the advantages of being an S-Corp. The proposal that part of the Biden Tax Act to increase and, and have you pay Social Security taxes on the profits and to have you pay net investment income tax on some of the profits, depending on whether you're active or not. And this would affect everybody. That would affect everybody. That's a broad sweep. And it would affect a lot of small businesses more because a lot of the, the bigger individuals and companies have ways of not having to pay that. Well, Bob, let's, let's talk about the other proposal, which is limiting each 1031 transaction to a half a million. Very important. Or a million if you're married. Or a million if you're married. So there is a proposal on the table to limit it to half a million dollars. So let's go back to that $20 million example, that multifamily building that's being sold for $20 million. Only half a million dollars is shielded. So $19.5 million is going to be slapped with capital gains tax. Correct. Think about what that would do to the markets. All right. You'd have, there would be a flock to the single family rental uh, sector. And you'd have institutional organizations competing with first time home buyers. It would be a complete mess. We already have institutional investors competing with first time home buyers. People are complaining, I can't buy in my community because these institutions are coming in and they're paying, you know, 20% over market value. They would magnify that to the 10th degree because, you know, now this $20 million asset is, this multifamily building is not so attractive anymore for that reason, because 19.5 of it is going to get slapped with the tax. So what do you do? Just go out and buy a ton of the half a million dollar ones instead, right? And you can just one off them because there was another proposal that they'll just limit the 1031s to one a year. There's another one. I just want to say this about that. I agree partly, and here's why. It's like any other business. People say when, you, when the tax law, you know, oh, if you raise taxes, they're not going to buy companies. At the end of the day, it depends on the profitability of the company. If the profit is there, people will still buy it. And then they'll have to do more strategizing with tax law. You're right. But that's always been the case. Every time they've talked about tax law going up, a lot of companies come up, oh, we're going to lose incentive, et cetera. And they don't, not in the long run. That doesn't happen. So I guess what you could say is that whenever something changes, that changes the way you underwrote your original opportunity, you just bake that into a new strategy to underwrite the opportunity. And obviously, that's going to affect market value for businesses and single family and multifamily and office and industrial, but it is what it is. It may help DSTs because the one of the things you said before is you can invest incrementally in a DST. You, you don't have to put them two, three million. You could put half a million, put 300,000, 200,000. 
I was getting a little depressed. Rob, tell us about that. <laughs> tell us about that. I feel much better now. That would absolutely help because, again, the modular nature of DSTs, tremendously helpful. And the minimum is typically 100,000. And it's, and it's funny because while you guys were talking about it, I was thinking to myself, well, could you take your $20 million asset and somehow fractionalize it? And yes, you can with a DST. Yeah, but it doesn't solve that component. If that law were to pass, you know, that $20 million building is now limited to half a million dollar of a benefit and the rest is going to get slapped. You still can't skirt that. You still have opportunity zones, by the way. You're, you're OZ Bob. I'm 1031 Rob. Yeah. Different mass. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I agree. But just, just to kind of take it up to 30,000 feet and give my, my overall impression of this. And people ask me all the time, right? Because I have 1031 Rob on my mask and I know I swim in this. They're like, what's going on with 1031s? I heard it in the news. Some people don't even know what it is, but they heard it in the news. Um, here's my opinion on it. I mentioned before, 1921 is when it started. It's 2021. It's been around for 100 years. It's been threatened many times in the past. It's always survived. And there's a very good reason for that. It creates a ton of jobs, keeps money in motion. The last figure I heard, uh, $55.3 billion of revenue generated from 1031s. I'm not just talking DSTs. I'm talking overall 1031s. $27.5 billion of that is jobs money. So it's a huge number. A lot of mom and pops use this to preserve generational wealth. Again, you don't cut off your nose to spite your face. So it's one of those things. I have immediacy to people that walk the halls in Congress. They kind of feel the same way. I personally hope that's true. I don't want to change my name to just Rob, but I believe it's here to stay. I believe it's a huge uphill battle and it's a very small portion of the budget that they're trying to free up. I get they're trying to free up money, but it's a huge uphill battle. The one addition I would make to that also, the reality is that the real estate lobby is enormous. They have incredible power and they have an incredibly deep pockets. And lobbyists, they have an impact on Democrats and Republicans, let's face it. The other thing in terms of you know structuring deals, yeah, one of the things I could think of right away is this. Many times people go into business themselves. Maybe what will happen is maybe they'll form partnerships with their kids, their siblings. And each one of them takes under $500,000 so that when each one sells, they're all eligible. If they're married, you know, each couple. So you'll, you may see more gifting involved, although it'll depend on what they do with the gift tax um, and the law. Currently, you can gift $30,000 a year with no tax. If you're married, the proposal would, would make gifts over a million, just like a state, taxable. So that's a different change in the law that could have an impact too, but we don't know. Well, no, no matter what happens, we as a society will pivot, right? 2020 taught us that, and you'll always be able to wield things somewhat in your favor. But going back to the, the proposed changes in the tax law, again, I, I don't see it happening. I believe it's a huge uphill battle, and uh, 1031s are here to stay. I tend to agree with you, but again, if it does happen, the 1031, the carryover rules would not begin until 2022. The capital gain rules would be effective at least right now, either in April or in May, is what they've said. So that we don't even know. So it would be retroactive a few months. Correct. If this does pass, when does it have to pass by? If the law passed, it probably wouldn't happen till December because they're right now they're trying to just finish up the the uh, infrastructure deal, and then they're they're off for August. They're closing down, so nothing's going to happen till the fall. And so they're, they're looking at the law passing potentially in December. I would say that if it doesn't pass in December and it doesn't pass until next year or comes up, that I, I think the chances are even smaller than of it happening. Bob mentioned lobby groups. You know, there are organizations out there where we can, we people in the real estate industry can voice our opinion. And 
tell our elected officials how we feel about 1031s and how they should stick around. So though, again, I don't believe in this being changed or neutered down, uh, it doesn't mean we shouldn't gather up the ammo to fight the war if we need it. I just want to mention all the listeners, no matter where you are listening to this, this is going to impact you nationwide. This is not just a New York State thing or a New York City thing. Google who represents me, right? And the first thing that comes up is a link to a place where you can put in your address and it tells you who represents you from the federal to the township level. And then you can contact all these people and give them input on how you feel about these changes. Even easier, Bill, there are multiple websites where you can just click the link, you'll put in your zip code, it already knows who your elected officials are, it'll generate an automatic letter that you can modify if you'd like to. Oh, well, what site is that? It's in my signature. All right, so what we're going to do is we're definitely going to put that link in the show notes so that you can protect it at uh, 1031. One thing I before we leave 1031, I do want to mention, because I've seen it a lot, When you do a 1031 exchange, it's important to understand that in addition to the rules that Rob and I laid out, two very important things you have to do. One, the replacement property's mortgage has to equal or exceed the mortgage that you're giving up on the property you're relinquishing. And two, that the sales price that the purchase price of the new property has to equal or exceed the selling price. I had a case. Again, I'm going to go back to that guy who was selling his apartment building for $24 million. Luckily, he called me up because his QI didn't tell him. And he said, I said, what's going on? I said, what are you doing with the mortgage? He says, oh, I have a $5 million mortgage, and I'm just going to pay it off. And I was like, don't you dare pay it off. You pay that off, you're paying tax on $5 million. And he was like, what? And they call that boot, right? That's called boot. I said, what? He said, what? I says, you need to have a mortgage of at least $5 million on the replacement properties combined. And luckily, he called me and, and he did. Otherwise, you would have been paying tax on that $5 million. So here, here's my version of that, Bob. I always say it this way. In any exchange, there's always two targets you got to keep your eye on. How much money you have sitting in escrow after closing costs? That's how much you have to deploy, how much you have to play, play with. And if you retired a mortgage, what position was that, right? And the modular nature of DSTs, because they have these different amounts of LTV baked in, it's very easy for me to hit those two targets. Why? I can blend programs together and get that sweet no, spot. I, I agree. And I think that's one of the nice things about DSTs, um, fractionally, because it does give you that benefit immediately. It's right there. Earlier, Rob, you had talked about tenants in common as one of the the ways to have fractional ownership. And then the DST was the other way to have fractional ownership. And you know, when I, when I mention DSTs to people, sometimes they say, oh, a REIT, which stands for Real Estate Investment Trust. And it's not a REIT. I get that all the time. People think I'm talking about REITs when I go down this path because it, it comes in different asset classes. It's in different parts of the country. It's passive. Uh, no, REITs, unfortunately, are not considered like-kind in a 1031 exchange. You can't satisfy a 1031 uh, by purchasing REITs. DSTs are. So that's why I will tell people to wrap your arms around this really easily. Think of them as REITs with 1031 benefits. And then people are like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. So the primary difference, correct me if I'm wrong, between a REIT and a DST, Bob, I think you'd be the person to ask this question, right? Because you're dealing with people that are, ha- have investments in both, right? For a REIT, you're getting a K-1 which basically is your portion of the profit, right? In general, that's true, yeah. And, and, a, and, a, and a REIT files its own taxes. It's its own, it's a separate entity. It takes the deductions, everything. But then in a DST... In a DST, what happens is this. Let's say that Rob owns, you know, is the sponsor of the property of a DST and it owns, you know, 
10 units or whatever, um, and you own 5% of that, at the end of the year, you're going to get a, an income statement report from the DST that tells you, here's your share of the income, here's your share of the expenses, what they are. You're going to put it on your own tax return, and you're going to take depreciation on your return. And you do that on a Schedule E? A Schedule E, because a DST doesn't file taxes. That's one of the requirements of it being a DST and not paying taxes, is that it's basically, if you look, you know what a tick is, right? Everybody know tenants in common. A tick would mean that if you and I want to own a property together, right, we make it legally a tenants in common, meaning we both joint own it, but we split we split a P&L every year. We each file our own Schedule E. Well, this is similar to a tick, except that it's a trust <laughs> that owns a lot of properties, and it does everything. It manages the property, whereas in a tick, we manage it ourselves. It does all of it. It has its own equity, its own debt. We're not liable for the debt, unlike um, where a tick, we might be liable for the debt, okay? So in that sense, it's, it's different and also similar. Because you're putting it all on your personal return at the end of the year. But the short answer is the REITs don't qualify for the exchange. They're not like that. That is correct. Right, right. So you have to do a DST. 1031 Rob, let's do a deeper dive into the DST. Give us an example of some stories with some clients that you've had. Well, I guess it's just one asset in each DST. It's one industrial building, one office building, one multifamily building, one mall, whatever it happens to be. When we're talking DSTs, it could be one singular location. It could be like one multifamily building sitting in Colorado Springs. It could be six 7-Elevens all across the country. It could be two Home Depots in different states. It could be multiple. It could be one. could be a, a multiple asset vehicle or a single asset vehicle. Give us some examples and you know what what the what the numbers were and how it impacted the person that didn't exchange into a particular or a series of DSTs and talk to us a little about what it costs to do that. I mean, obviously it's less than paying the taxes, but there's got to be a cost to it. I'll kind of equate it to my profiles, and I mentioned before, if you're tired, stuck, or out of luck, call 1031 Rob because I can bring more options to the table. Those equate to my buckets or essentially my profiles that I aim DSTs at. Those of you who know me know I'm ex-military. I shoot it straight. I give it like it is. I am not trying to get it every 1031 transaction in the country because I'm not appropriate for it. But if you check one of my boxes, chances are I can bring an option to the table that's not being discussed. And I always tell uh, professionals like Bob or the client themselves, keeping my services in your back pocket, it's going to allow you to navigate that 1031 exchange with more confidence because you have more options. It's simple as that. So let's talk about some of the examples. Uh, One of my buckets is, we mentioned this 45-day identification period, which is problematic. And I mentioned before for two reasons. People procrastinate or they put all their eggs in one basket. Procrastination, you know, they think 45 days is a lot of time. They hit day 42, day 43. Now the broker starts getting the panic phone call because they got to identify something. So it's a time crunch. Or they just fall in love with one thing or maybe more than one thing. And that kind of pertains to one of my stories that I want to share. I had a gentleman that was selling a property in Brooklyn started identifying properties. He found two that he was very confident in. Also happened to be in Brooklyn, same asset class, but they don't have to be. It just has to be held for investment purposes. So as he's journeying through his 45-day identification period, he identifies two, and he's very confident either one will work for him. He had an empty slot. We had to talk about DSTs and about the three-property rule, which he was using. He said, Rob, you know what? This makes sense. Even though I don't see it happening, it's good to have that in my corner. Let's name a DST as a backup. Well, guess what? What kind of things happen in real estate? all kinds. First property, weird environmental stuff. Second property, issues came up there too. So here we had somebody who was 100% confident that he didn't need me, but 
had the foresight to say, hey, you know, let, let's put guardrails on it just in case. And at the end, he told me point blank. He said, Rob, you weren't my first choice. You weren't my second choice. And he was very clear about that. But he said, you know what? Compared to paying almost 40% capital gains on that transaction, this is a win in my book. So sometimes clients get backed into it. I also want to talk about the last bucket, which I just call the scraps. It's the residual, right? You sell an investment property for, let's say, $3 million. You have a rock star broker. You do a traditional 1031 transaction. You find a property for 2.8, let's say. Anything you leave behind in escrow is going to get slapped with capital gains tax unless you deploy it for investment purposes. It's kind of funny when I deal with people at that junction, whatever that residual is, if it's 100,000, 200,000, as in my example, 400,000, 650,000, everybody has the same mentality upstairs. I got my primary or secondary choices. I'm happy. Good exchange. I guess I'll just pay the tax on what's left. And there's a better way to do it. It's one of the things that DSTs are great at is picking up those scraps. Don't pay tax on that money, no matter how much is left. I can get you access to something you maybe don't have in your investment portfolio, like an industrial or self-storage, earn a decent rate of return on that money, plus have back-end appreciation on that money as well. It's just a better use of the money. And for the advisors that bring me to the table, like the brokers, uh, the CPAs, the real estate attorneys, it's just going to make them look that much better because they're in their client's corner looking out for them. They don't do it. I do. We work as a team in tandem. So there's two buckets that you talked about, you know, the scraps and also the person using it as the third choice and, and having it save him at the at the end of the day. You know, what about the person that's like, well, you know what? This is what I want to do. I don't want to identify another property because I don't want to manage real estate anymore. And I'm not going to pick one or two properties and leave some scraps behind. I want to take 100% of the gain and I want to put it into a DST and I want to have my mailbox money coming in from the returns and I want to benefit from the gain after five or six years when they move this asset into another asset. They can keep rolling that over, right? You can keep rolling. These are great. And I do have clients that they're all in with me. They're saying, you know, I'm done with that. I don't want to be a landlord anymore. Bought it for next to nothing a long time ago. Now they're looking to have big capital gains. They heard about the 1031. Chances are through their real estate attorney or CPA. They like that idea. They want to hold on to their money, but they don't want to deal with the headaches anymore. Get that panic phone call on Christmas Eve about the leaky toilets. Let's go into a DST or multiple DSTs. Rob, you're the advisor. You swim in this. What do you recommend? Well, I think we have a little bit of a dream team going here, right? Me is the broker. Bob is the pre-planner to make sure that they're doing what they need to do. Slash OZ Bob. <laughs> slash OZ Bob. CPA Bob slash OZ Bob. OZ, by the way, folks, is Opportunity Zones, in case you didn't get that. And then 1031 Rob to make sure that uh, the DST is identified and executed. Bob, on the DST, I'm assuming the stepped-up basis stays. Under current law, nothing would change. There. Right. So you, so under current law, you would still get the uh, stepped-up basis yeah. in that yeah. example that we talked before. Right. His or her daughter now uh, owns this property with a stepped-up basis at whatever that happened to be. And I would ask Rob just to confirm this. Do DSTs appreciate in value as much as other real estate does on an operating basis and on a return? In, in addition to the mailbox money that they're collecting yeah, every month, yeah. there typically is that back-end depreciation because the end game for any DST by the sponsor is to flip those assets for a profit. And investors participate. 
So in that case, let's say, you know, someone's in some DST where they plan to flip that for a profit because of appreciation. They're using a value-add strategy where they bought, say, an apartment complex, and they're going to improve it, and they're going to increase the rents over a period of time. And then they're going to flip it, and they're going to 1031 that into another asset. And I guess you're already in that DST, so you just kind of carry over with that. And then during that period of time, you move on to the next world, and now your heirs get a stepped-up basis to what the value of your fractional ownership of the DST was on the date of death. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. Yeah. All right. When we started doing that deep dive into the DSTs, Rob, I mentioned fees, and I'd also like to mention returns. Uh, Give us some examples. Sure. So on the fee side, I get asked this a lot, and it's a valid question. You know, how do you get paid? I get paid directly by my broker dealer who gets paid directly from the sponsor. So whoever the sponsor was that packaged up the DST that my investor bought, they pay a commission to my broker dealer and I get my share of that. The good news for the investor is that it's already factored into the cash on cash number that I give them. So these DSTs, if you're dealing with reputable sponsors that have great track records and have weathered the toughest storms, we're anywhere from 4% cash on cash to 6.5% cash on cash net to the client. So it's a net number. It's not crazy. It's not double digit. But again, we're talking about solid sponsors. Everybody gets paid to do what they're supposed to do. Acquisition fees, legal fees, property management fees, commissions to people like us. Everybody gets paid, but it's factored into that cash on cash number. So if I tell a client, hey, I have a great multifamily program. It's paying 5% cash on cash. It means it's already factored in there. You know, that it's probably more like 5.25% cash on cash, but everybody got paid. The investor doesn't feel it. And the good news is their full amount goes to work for them. They invest a million dollars, their full million dollars goes to work in that cash on cash number. Everybody's fee is baked into that. So is it a preferred return where the fractional owners get paid first before the sponsor? Or is it a fixed amount where it says, this is what you're going to get? It's typically a fixed amount. Again, it depends on if there's LTV baked into the deal or loan to value. So sometimes you have uh, interest only where it kind of rises a bit, then it dips to service the debt and then starts to come back up. So it really depends. How long normally do your deals last? From a compliance standpoint, we're trained to say seven to 10 years. We should manage client expectations anywhere between seven and 10 years to hit that liquidity event where the sponsor gets a great offer and sells the assets. The reality is it's five and a half years. That's the amount of time it's taking these sponsors to flip these assets for a profit. Conversely, I tell clients we've seen shorter. We've seen uh, as short as two years where they were able to get a great offer and the returns were double digit. They're not going to say no to that. They're going to prepare their investors for what's called a liquidity event. You know, line up your CPA, line up your QI. You're going to have another 1031 event if you choose to do it. So that return you talked about, does that include anticipated increase in value? Two benefits here. You're getting your paid the weight money, which is the mailbox money every month. You know, if I tell you pays 5% cash on cash, that's that number. And then on the back end, you're hopefully appreciating uh, in the double digits. Oh, all right. So the appreciation is in addition to the 5%. Right. right. So if someone invests a million dollars of gain, they could be looking at $50,000 a year coming back to them. Now, now they vary, right? Not all sponsors are created equal. Some have been around longer. Some have more conservative underwriting. Me personally, because I'm so quality centric, I prefer the sponsors that you know have the conservative underwriting. They underpromise and overdeliver instead of the other way around. They've weathered the toughest storms, like last year, like 2008. So there's a price for quality. When I'm recommending programs, I'm typically in the fours, fives. What happens when someone wants to exit from one of these things? I always encourage clients the best way to get the maximum benefit out of a DST is sit for the full ride. Get into it, satisfy your exchange, that's easy. 
sit for the ride, which again, the industry average has been five and a half years, and then get to the liquidity event, which is when they can sell off the assets for a profit. At that point, you get your initial investment back plus your share of the back end depreciation. That's the best way to do it. And I encourage clients, don't pull the plug early. I frequently get asked, well, what if something happens? In two years, I need the money I need to pull out. There are provisions for doing it. There's no readily available market for it. The sponsor will basically offer your shares up to other investors in the pool, but you'll probably take a loss and you certainly won't be uh, entitled to that back end depreciation on your money. So it's not recommended. And when the person exits in that form, now do they have to pay capital gains tax on the return of the original investment? Unless it was part of a 1031, in which case they have a deferred gain and then they'll pay tax on that. And it also depends if it was inside of two years, because generally right. it's accepted that it needs to be held for investment purposes for at least two years. Anything inside of that, the IRS and can contest. that's true for not just DSTs, but any, any like-kind exchange property, you have to hold for at least two years. In order for it to be? A legitimate 1031. All right. So just so that I understand this, I'm in a DST. It has a life, but that life is not specifically defined, but it's seven to 10 years, you said before, right? That's what we should manage expectations at. Right, right. It's, it's more likely closer to five, five and a half. So now it's somewhere between five and seven years, and the sponsor of that DST has realized the maximum impact of the value-add strategy, and now they are going to flip that asset. They're going to end the ride. That's called a liquidity event. A liquidity event. They're going to end the ride. You're going to get back your original investment, which was your capital gain that you 1031'd into that. You have already realized the monthly, you get paid monthly on the- uh, on The vast the, majority pay monthly, yeah, on occasion quarterly. Right. Right. But uh, every year you've added up either quarterly or monthly, you know, that 5% or whatever it happened to be. So let's say you put in a million dollars and now your fractional ownership, it was worth one and a half million. Now you're getting one and a half million back. So I guess my question is, is if you don't do another DST or take that money in 1031, exchange it into now an asset that you are going to manage- and you still have it. It's not, it's not at the benefit for the benefit of your heirs because you're still around. Then what happens there from a tax point of view, Bob? It now becomes a taxable event. Just as if you owned the property yourself and sold it, it would be taxable because remember what we discussed earlier, it's deferred gain. Right. So once you have a liquidity event, it's no longer deferred unless you're flipping it into a new 1031. Right. Yeah. To be clear, the, the liquidity event inside of the DST just means that the ride is ending. So that means if you want to preserve your 1031, if you don't want to pay tax, you need to roll into something else. It doesn't need to be DSTs or you know combination of DSTs. It could be any of that other stuff, but you just need to be conscious of that, that the ride is over. You need to find a new home for it. Right. So from an estate planning point of view, somebody who's owned real estate for a long time and concerned about the legacy of that real estate for their family, for their heirs, and their heirs aren't necessarily interested in managing more real estate. They could sell the real estate, 1031 into a DST. And now let's say six or seven years down the line, the end of the ride has not happened yet. That person passes away. They have now a stepped up basis for the heirs, which the heirs benefit from within the DST. And then it sells, I guess, whatever the value of, of their fractional ownership of the DST at that time uh, would be their new basis, Bob? 
at the date of death or six months thereafter is when you determine the fair market value for the beneficiary. So if they if they in, inherit it on July 2021, and then two years later it's sold, the liquidity event occurs, their basis will be as of July 2021 minus, the, you know, against the selling price when it was two years later, 2023. So they'll only pay the gain on that difference. That's it. Let's say they invested the million fractional ownership. It was worth one million two. That's when the person passes away. That's their basis. They that's their basis one million two, and then the liquidity event, the end of the ride in the DST happens two years later, and it's one point five. They're going to pay on a gain of three hundred thousand. Correct. Woo. That, that's a generous back-end depreciation, by the way, Bill. It typically will not be 50%. Okay. All right. Uh, you know what? I'm glad you clarified that because I'm using round numbers, right? Not realizing that people might be listening to this and thinking, wow, that's great. I can't wait to do this. So I'm really glad you clarified that. 50% is a little unrealistic. We have seen in the 20s, low 30s. So that, that happens. What would you say the average is? High teens. High teens. Okay. But the thing is, is that the person doesn't have to work the real estate anymore. Right. Ditch the tenants, the toilets, and the trash. That's it. Just put on autopilot. Yeah. All right. Great. I just want to raise one thing here for any of your listeners who are interested in getting into real estate investing. If you become a real estate investor, and earlier in the talk in the beginning, I talked about the 1986 Tax Act, which basically said and changed the definition of real estate. 1986, it said, that the operation of rental real estate, by definition, is considered a passive activity, which means that if you generate losses from that activity, you cannot take the losses on your personal return until either you have other passive activities that are generating income or you sell that activity or it starts generating a profit. And as I said, there's two exceptions to that rule. The first exception is that you're allowed to deduct up to $25,000 in losses from your real estate activity, assuming your total income on your tax return is 100000 or less. And that's against your ordinary income. Ordinary wages, yeah, any total combined ordinary income. When, when that, your income goes between one hundred and one hundred and fifty thousand, that is phased out. And once it's above 150000 then it's suspended again and you can't, again, you can't take it. It's suspended until you sell. So when you say it's suspended till you sell, so now that loss- It's put on a shelf, basically. And, and when you sell, you can take it off. Yeah, the good thing is this. And for example, I'll give you a real life example. I'll go back to that client who sold his building for $24 million. And he had, over the course of about seven, eight years, he generated about $280,000 in losses that he couldn't take. Those were ordinary losses. So when he sold that, the property and did a 1031, he was able to take $280,000 as ordinary ink loss against his salary and other income. And that was huge because he sold the, he sold the property. Oh, so you get to take it against the ordinary income when you sell the property. You get to take it. That's right. Or if there was a gain, even if you didn't do a 1031, the good thing about it, because I get asked as clients, well, like, oh, well, if I can't take the loss, you know, why? I'm like, yeah, but when you sell, you're going to sell and pay capital gains tax, but the loss is ordinary income. 
So potentially, let's say you're in the 20% bracket for capital gain, but for ordinary income, you're in the 35% bracket. That means you get to deduct that loss at 35%. Meanwhile, your gain is only 20%. Very interesting. I didn't know that. The second rule, and this is very important for real estate investors who want to be in the business of operating real estate, the laws are very strict in order to do that. The first rule is this, that you have to spend more than 50% of your time during the year, in minutes, by the way, in minutes, in the real estate trader business. That's number one. Number two, if you meet that threshold, then you have to show that you, what's called materially participate in the real estate trader business, which means you have to spend, there's like seven different possibilities. The most popular ones are you have to spend at least 500 hours in the real estate trader business, or you have to spend more than 100 hours and nobody spends more than you do, blah, blah, blah. And the last one is the facts and circumstances. And then the final threshold is that you have to spend more than 750 hours on each rental property. Now, the IRS knows that if, let's say you got 10, 20 properties, there's no way you can spend 750 hours a year on each property. So they allow you to make an election to treat them all as one. If you want to be a real estate professional, though, I will tell you, you need to keep meticulous records on your minutes if you have any other job or anything else you're doing, because this is a highly auditable area and many people lose because they don't keep proper records of this. And so if you're audited and you don't have the proper records, what's the penalty? Uh, they deny the losses, current year losses. So all those losses that you were able to accumulate- you No, can't no, ac- the ones that you were taking year to year. Oh, the ones you were taking, taking year, year to year. Because you're a real estate professional. If you're oh. a real estate professional, you can take those losses. Now, I started this conversation oh, to, yeah, yeah. to address the DSTs. DSTs are considered passive activity. So those are for activities for people who don't want to be real estate professionals. They just want a coupon clip. They just want to earn a nice a nice cash flow annually. They don't want any problem. If you want to be a real estate professional and have rental, you got to buy properties that you're going to manage yourself. That's mainly, that's the key. Well, thanks for that uh, explanation. That wasn't even on our, on our menu of topics and uh, that was very, very informative. So I appreciate that, Bob. Yeah, uh, as a takeoff to what I was just discussing, uh, one of the issues that always comes up and when you're looking at DSTs is obviously the quality of the sponsor. Um, in your experience, can you talk about that and the ones that you're dealing with and how do you manage, how do you look at that? How do you provide that to the people who are interested in investing in your DSTs? Sure, and I'm glad you brought that up, Bob. That's super important to the way I run my practice. The cornerstone of how I run my practice, by the way, is my military background and being a straight shooter, living by an honor code, right? Being very quality centric. That being said, with the DSD sponsors that I'm recommending, they have to have the best track records. They have to have weathered the toughest storms. Uh, Good stewardship of the underlying properties is everything. So though I have a pretty extensive menu of DSTs to choose from, I don't like everything that's on there. I whittle that down pretty significantly based on quality and track record. So, you know, again, in a DST world, Don't try to squeeze an extra quarter of a point or half a point out of it. I'll have these great conversations with clients all the time. I'll manage expectations somewhere in the fours or fives, you know, with solid, solid sponsors that, you know, really know what they're doing, have the best track records. A week later, they'll come up and say, well, you know, I Googled this and this sponsor's paying eight and a half. And how come you didn't tell me about this? Okay, who are they? Where are they? How long have they been doing this? The number comes from somewhere. So I get that they're trying to grab market share, but they're probably foregoing reserve requirements overestimating occupancy, underestimating taxes, buyer beware because something is happening there 
And in the DST world, we all want the swan, the sleep well at night. The only way to do that is go with high quality sponsors. So anybody that I recommend, whether it's a QI or a broker like Bill or a CPA like Bob has to be of the highest, highest quality and really know their stuff, right? Because you want your team to all do their integral part and make this thing successful, this 1031 in the end. So highest quality, non-negotiable. Well, we're starting to wind down, guys. One of the things that we didn't talk about is entities, right? You got S-Corps, you got C-Corps, you got LLCs. Sometimes people own real estate in their own personal name. Rob, what's your experience with that when people own real estate in some different entities and now they're coming in and they're doing a 1031 exchange and a DST? Sure. So I've seen DSTs come in all types of ways, typically as individuals, but sometimes as partnerships, sometimes as trusts, sometimes LLCs, sometimes S-Corps. The general rule of thumb is it needs to move the same way. If they sold as an LLC, it needs to move into the replacement property as an LLC. I've seen LLCs unbundle, you know, and that's more of a, a legal. I would defer to the real estate attorney in that recommendation. That's not my expertise, but I've seen LLCs undo themselves so that the individual members can go their separate ways. There are tactics to do it, but just remember, whatever the structure is at the time of sale, that's the way it generally needs to move. One of the things that I want to point out here Realty Speak fans, you're getting a lot of information in this particular episode. This is designed to help you understand what some of the options are. So when you're considering a legal issue around the disposition of real estate, you definitely want to be speaking to your real estate attorney. When you're thinking about a DST option, you definitely want to be speaking to Rob. When you're thinking about, well, how am I going to market and sell the property? You want to be speaking to me. And obviously, when you are thinking about how do I plan for this from a tax perspective, you want to be speaking to your accountant or Bob. And Bob, with that said, could you expand a little bit on what Rob just said about the different entities and how to do a 1031 exchange from one entity to another entity? Sure. In a partnership, you can do a 1031 exchange for one property the partnership owns for another at the partnership level. If for some reason the partners want to do it or they have different interests, a partnership allows you to drop down the property, basically the tenants in common, to the partners, and then each partner can do what they want. And this is a real-life example. I had a client, two siblings, and they owned two properties in the partnership. They wanted to do a 1031 exchange, but they couldn't inside the partnership because you can't sell your partnership interest. That's the only way they could have done it. So what we did was we literally dropped down the two properties. They both owned them, both properties as tenants in common. And then now after two years, each person was able to do whatever they wanted. In an S corporation or a C corporation, you don't have that luxury because if you do a distribution of property to the shareholders, it's, it's a taxable event. So it has to be at the C-Corp level that you do a 1031, or it has to be at an S-Corp level you do a 1031. You can't download it to the individual shareholders. It doesn't work. And I guess people owning it as individuals together, that's considered tenants in common? Generally, it is, yes. All right, great. The, the one thing I will say, and I just want to reiterate what you said, Bill, because I've seen cases of people trying to rush it or 
In my experience, uh, and I, in my firm, we've done a lot of 1031 exchanges over the years. It is one of the most complicated areas of tax law in terms of the calculation of the gain and the deferral and figuring it out. You really need to work closely with your accountant to make sure you do it right. Having somebody like Rob, who's, who does a lot of vetting of the projects before he recommends it, is more important than maybe making a half a percent more. Because if you don't have that kind of vetting and due diligence, it could end up costing you a lot more money at the back end and more taxes. Terrific, guys. This was very meaty. <laughs> it was a lot. Yeah. I think it was a lot. Yeah. 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 I do too. That was extraordinary wealth and knowledge you shared with me and the Realty Speak listeners today. And as we wind down our time together, I do have one more question for both of you. So let's see. Bob, I'll ask you first. So, Rob, you get to think about it for a minute. When you wake up tomorrow and something around the taxation of real estate has changed forever, what do you wish that would be? Well, I deal with a lot of, um, as I said earlier, deal with a lot of real estate professionals and that have a lot of rental properties and also um, are looking for ways to be able to deduction. There's still a lot of gray areas in the law and in the court cases that have that make it hard in some cases to actually determine what the best route is. I would say if there was simplification of the code in that regard, I think it would make life a lot easier for a lot of people. It's funny you say that because my mantra over the last couple of days is like certain things happen. I go, why does it have to be so complicated? That's right. Well, mine is almost the same answer. I was going to say that the demystification around 1031s and the tax implications, which by the way, I get asked a lot, you know, is is it worth me doing? What's my tax consequence? First of all, that's not me, but there is a lot of mystery that clients swim in and, you know, is this right for them? What are the ramifications? I wish it was just simpler for them to understand. But in the absence of that, I'd say, go with a true pro, go with Bob. You know, he knows this as best as you could possibly know it. And he'll guide you from a tax standpoint. And the rest of us do our part, Bill and myself and the QI and the real estate attorney in the transaction. Use us. We're your team. We're in your corner. And with that said, how do people get in touch with us, Bob? Go visit my website, www.robertprussocpa.com. Yeah, and by the way, subscribe to uh, Bob's newsletter. Yeah, we send out blogs and we send out newsletters a lot. And then uh, Rob? Well, one of the beautiful things about branding myself as 1031 Rob and it appearing on my masks and people Googling me on the ferry and the subway is I cannot hide. So just Google 1031 Rob, uh, whether you put a space in there or not, I come right up. My website is 1031rob.com. Yeah. And I guess I branded myself too as Realty Speak Podcast. So all you got to do is Google Realty Speak Podcast and basically the whole page is Bill Widener. And of course, Realty Speak fans, Please reach out to me if you're considering a sale or a purchase of investment real estate. Just Google Realty Speak Contact or Realty Speak Podcast is one word, and my contact page comes up in the results. Or you can just call or text me at 917-232-8529. It'll all be in the show notes. So if you didn't get it while you were listening in the car, don't worry about it. You can check out the show notes later. Guys, thank you so much for this. This was tremendous education today for the Realty Speak listeners. That's a wrap. Bill, Bob, thank you for having me. Thanks. It was great to be here. Really enjoyed it. Well, there you have it. 
Everyone, thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. Please subscribe. You can do so right on the player. Just choose your favorite platform like iTunes or Google Play Music or search for us on your favorite podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices or Apple Podcasts for an iPhone. And now there's an email subscription opt-in on the top of the episode page on the website. And please share our show with others. Just choose share on the player and choose your preferred social media platform. And of course, you can always get all the episodes and contact me directly via the website at BillWedner.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.